This is the CBF Podcast Conversation. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm your host, Andy Hale. And this week, we have a special Facebook and YouTube live interview with Baptist Women in Ministry. In a few moments, we'll introduce our guest, and then we'll jump into the conversation. But we do want to let you know that this experience is intended for you to interact with us. So if you have questions uh, for our guests later on, you can comment to the right on Facebook, or if you're watching on YouTube, you can uh, comment down below. Uh, We need to tell you about one of our annual sponsors. Uh, This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by National Research University. You can visit their website, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Our guest for this week's special live conversation is Dr. Meredith Stone. She's the executive coordinator of Baptist Women in Ministry. She's also previously served as the associate dean for academics and assistant professor of scripture and ministry at Logson Seminary at Hardin-Simmons University. She's also served as a teaching pastor, interim pastor, and the Texas Baptist Women's Ministry Specialist. Meredith, thank you for joining the conversation. It's great to be with you all. So heaven forbid that someone doesn't know the great Dr. Meredith Stone. Um, But for those that might not be familiar with your story, tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, I uh, I grew up in Texas. I am a Texas girl um, and grew up in a, a Southern Baptist church that was a little more conservative. And so as a teenager, whenever I uh, first started to feel called to ministry, didn't really have a great outlet for that and didn't receive a lot of affirmation as to what that could look like. Um, and so it kind of started this process for me of, of journeying through figuring out what what really is calling, uh, how does God use women, and and what does that mean for me? Uh, So about 10 years later, uh, I finally got to the point of realizing that maybe there were no limits on God's calling for women. Uh, I was able to uh, have the the journey of great professors and friends who helped me to understand how to read scripture in that regard, uh, and who began to give me opportunities and point out the gifts that I had Um, And so I was so blessed to have an opportunity to begin serving uh, in a ministry role with with young adults and as a teaching pastor uh, and really was able to find a a whole different perspective on the church and a a love for God's work in the world when I was able to see the world through these lenses of, of God's value of every person in a different way. Uh, and so, you know, throughout the church ministry, uh, whether it's been in seminary, in the classroom, uh, my work with Texas Baptist, uh, that that story has been been a part of me so much so that I've I've watched it lived out in, in other young women I've worked with and my students and really had this desire to journey alongside of them in their discovery and, and what that looks like. And so it's a it's a great privilege to now be with Baptist Women in Ministry uh, and be leading our our organization's efforts in helping to influence Baptist life so that more and more women are able to fully use all of their gifts and calling. You served in in a variety of capacities. You were alluding to that uh, just now, professor, pastor, teaching pastor. What do you feel like prepared you the most for, um, for now the executive director of Baptist Women in Ministry? That's a great question. Um, I think in in every ministry role that I have been in, um, I have had to learn how to navigate relationships. Uh, I think you know whether you're serving in congregational life, whether you're on faculty at an institution, um, or working in denominations, there are a number of different relationships which you are always managing. Um, and so I think the experiences that I've had. Uh, in being able to navigate conflict, um, but also in, in learning how to be a good mentor, uh, how to be a good colleague, uh, and how to be a good leader. 
uh, to the people around me. And so I think the, those, those aspects of learning how to navigate different kinds of relationships have really been the most beneficial because I think at its core, uh, the work of BWIM is the work of relationships. Um, it's our work with women, with congregations, uh, with all kinds of people who are a part of Baptist life. You come to, to BWIM uh, leading the next chapter after the great Pam Durso. Um, it's always an amazing transition when your predecessor is someone of the caliber of Dr. Durso. So what's it like taking over the next part, uh, the next chapter of, of the BWIM journey after, after Pam Durso? I, I tell you, I wish everyone had the gift of being able to follow someone uh, like Pam who set such a great foundation in place for the, the work of BWIM. Uh, you know, when, we, when you look back over BWIM's history of the past nearly 40 years that we've, we've been uh, doing this work of advocating, we've come so far uh, in Baptist life. And in the past, you know, 10 or 12 years under Pam's leadership, we were able to grow in ways that wouldn't have been possible without her uh, administrative leadership and the ways in which she connected people uh, throughout Baptist life. And so, uh, learning how to to step into this and take the great gifts that we have um, and then find ways to grow that work, uh, to look at, you know, the great programs that we have and say, OK, what is the, the next step for this program, which has already come so far? Uh, so I, I wish for everyone that they might have that experience of following someone like Pam. Well, it says so much about you that you were the one that was selected to to carry on this this next part of the of the journey, you know. So, as as you look at the past decade of Baptist Women in Ministry, what would you say have been some of the key initiatives and achievements? Uh, I th I think one of the greatest things uh, that BWIM has created and grown is our mentoring program. Uh, being a woman in ministry can be very isolating. Uh, I have. I have yet to meet a woman who doesn't have stories, uh, stories of, of feeling rejected, of being rejected, of uh, being insulted, being harassed, uh, being told that she is inferior um, in, in both explicit and implicit ways. And so a, a program like our mentoring program is a, an opportunity for women who are young in their ministry careers or in new contexts to connect with those women who have been through that and have learned some of those ways of navigating through it, but also just to find that solidarity. Um, I, I, I heard a, a young woman say recently as, as she was hearing the stories of some, some women who had been in ministry a little bit longer than her and the difficulties they'd face. She said, you know, it's just so amazing to know that these women have been through this and they still choose ministry. Um, and that's something that is was encouraging to her to say it's worth it. You know, this is work uh, that is worth figuring out how to how to move forward. Uh, so our mentoring program has been a, a great success of the last ten years, as well as the the work that has been done with with congregational search committees uh, and trying to help them understand how do we how do we think about women candidates and what that looks like uh, in the past 10 years, we, we've done State of Women and Baptist Life reports every about five years. And every time we've done those reports, we've had some figure that we are we are able to share, which shows how much we are growing. Um, you know, in the last report, which was done uh, about five years ago, that was the number of women pastors, uh, which was at that point almost over 200. It was about 6.5 percent of pastors in, in CBF Life, which has come a long way. But I think it was also one of those good moments to say, we've still got a long way to go um, because, you know, we're our, the hope is 50 percent, um, you know, that there would be an equal distribution of men and women pastors. You know, if, we, if you look back over the the long history of the church, I think to get to a true equal number of women pastors would mean we probably have to go past 50 percent. Um, but really, you know, it, it's our desire to find that commonality, a shared ministry. Um, and so I, I think that those those two pieces of work that have been done in the past two years, we've been able to, or past, past 10 years, we've been able to see uh, great growth, uh, both for, it, for women individually, but also in congregations. 
Yeah. Well, um, you know, not to go too fanboy or anything, knowing your good work when it was announced, you were taking over. I was super excited uh, about the future of BWIM. So I wonder if you might give us uh, a little insight looking ahead. If you if you were to look ahead for the next decade, what, what are going to be some of the key goals and aspirations under your leadership? Yeah, I think um, and I, I'm glad you you mentioned the great success of the past 10 years before that question, because I think the first vision is to build on the great work that has been done. Um, so I think, you know, one of those ways is I tend to think of BWIM's work in, in two roles, and that's supporting and encouraging the women, but then also our work within Baptist life and, and advocating. And so you know, on the side of our, our work with, with women who feel called to ministry or, or serving in ministry, I think uh, part of our vision is how do we expand these programs that we have of support for women to include women who may have not typically been reached uh, so far. Um, maybe that includes women who are serving in associate roles or children's pastor roles, youth pastor roles, uh, and maybe didn't know if uh, the work of BWIM really was for them. And, and they need that same kind of support and sisterhood and solidarity in the same way as women who are serving in more senior roles. Um, and also to grow in terms of how we are able to support communities for women of color. Um, BWIM has done a great job of reaching out to, to women of color and finding ways to support those communities. And I think for all of us, we can do more. Uh, uh, for, for women of color, they're not only facing the prejudices uh, against them as women, but also fighting against racism. And so what does it look like for us to come alongside people who are already providing that support uh, and, and be that community of resource to them as well? So, you know, it's our vision that, that BWIM's work could grow in that regard. Um, and then on the, the other side with our, our advocacy work, I'd love to grow our work with congregations, uh, that it would continue to include search committees, but maybe even grow beyond just the search committees to uh, the congregation itself, uh, so that we can be a part of equipping congregations to create a culture which is empowering to all the women in their congregation, not just in the pulpit, but in the pew and in the deacon body, committee members, uh, women who are serving in, in hospitality and teaching Sunday school. What does it look like for congregations to really be a place that says, okay, we've, we've been formed by this male dominant leadership for so long. What do we need to look at to change to where the women who are a part of our congregation can find full use of their voice and gifts. Um, and I think that's hard and long work. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to what it will, what it will become to, to begin that, that work with congregations. So I, I know you don't want to leave anybody out, um, but who are some of the names of, of women within Baptist life that, that many people don't know about, but we should be paying attention to? There are many. <laughs> yeah, and that is a tough question because I don't want to leave anyone out. Um, I think there are a lot of young pastors uh, that are serving that I think have uh, great preaching voices. Uh, one of the things I, I started doing at the beginning of the year, uh, the gifts of the pandemic are you get to listen to a lot of different preachers. Uh, and so I began just listening to preachers and I have heard uh, young preachers, I've heard preachers who are not so young, who have prophetic words uh, that I, I wouldn't have heard had I not reached out and, and listened for those. But I think beyond the pastors that are serving, um, I think there are women who are serving in associate roles, women who are coming up in the seminaries. Uh, we just had the, the CBF gathering uh, in honoring women's voices last night. And we had the wonderful voice of, of Joya Moore, who's a seminary student uh, at, at Candler, who was sharing with us. Um, and so I, I and she, she won one of our BWIM awards. So she's a name that we've said before. So I'm, I'm going to kind of defer and say, uh, I don't want to say names. <laughs> all you All you really have to do is look a little bit harder 
Um, and I've uncovered some amazing voices. Um, and so maybe people could email me and I, I could send them a few, a few names of folks to, to listen to. Well, we need to pause to tell you about one of our other annual sponsors, BSK, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky is hosting annual Henson Lectures on Monday, March 1st from 10.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The E. Glenn Henson Lecture Series started in 2009 and honors the life and work of Dr. E. Glenn Henson by inviting lecturers who share his passions for Christian scholarship in and for the life of the church and the world. This year's lectures will be held virtually and will be free, allowing anyone uh, interested in participating in the higher, highly regarded series. Uh, this year's speaker is Dr. Doug Weaver, doc, uh, the Director of Undergraduate Studies and Professor of Baptist Studies at Baylor University. Dr. Weaver's uh, lectures are entitled, these are, these are fascinating lectures, Holy Spirit Power, Baptist in the Experience of Pentecostalism, and Baptist in the Charismatic Expression from uh, Sensationism to Carpet Time. Visit bsk.edu backslash Henson for more information or to register. Well, I know what I'm doing on on March the first. It's I'm, I don't know what you're doing, but I know what I'm doing now. So uh, um, I think there's also church works on that day. There is, there is lots of good things to do on the same day. If I can have that time turner that Hermione Granger had in Harry Potter, I can figure there out how to go. be in two places <laughs> at one time. So uh, one of the most remarkable initiatives that that BWIM has led over the last decade. Um, is really looking at uh, clergy sexual misconduct, um, specifically through the task force that was formed uh, several years ago. And this initiative resulted in a lot of amazing resources for organization, churches, and ministers. Um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about the practical resources that are available through this initiative. And I just got to join this task force recently uh, through work with BWIM, and it, it's been so great to learn more about what's been done. Uh, a couple of the resources that were developed, which have been so helpful, uh, there are some video resources, which are educational resources that have study books to go along with them. And these are designed for congregations uh, to be educating themselves on what clergy sexual misconduct is and what they can do to be preventing that but also for, for ministers, for seminary students. Uh, I, I think there are seminary classes who are using these resources so that they can begin to also understand what that looks like and be able to curb those, those behaviors within their congregations um, and, and set up good systems to, to make sure those things aren't, um, don't, don't have environments in which they're occurring. Uh, one of the, the most painful things uh, as a part of, of hearing the stories of Baptist women in ministry is that you hear far too often women who are in ministry roles who have experienced uh, either harassment or abuse of some sort. Uh, I think we are trying to do a better job of educating folks around boundaries uh, what are the appropriate boundaries for people to have with a, a woman in a leadership position? Uh, so much of our uh, culture, we, we've had these embedded notions of, of how women should be treated. We've, we've seen it in, uh, in film and movies. We've seen it within society. And it's, it's transferred over into the way that women get treated in the church. Um, and so if, if there is work that this task force has done that can be a part of that educating so that more women don't have to go through that in order to be able to use their, their God-given callings and gifts, uh, then that is time well spent. Uh, so we're, we're hopeful about the, the continued work of that task force. Um, our partnership with CBF and that has meant uh, Get having a partnership with Grace Ministries, which is doing education uh, within individual congregations beyond just the, the videos and the, the study guide resources. And so we're looking forward to what that work looks like in the days ahead. Uh, well, if for the folks that are interested in taking a look at this, you can go to bwim.info uh, backslash safe churches. Uh, and there's an extraordinary page just filled with amazing resources there. But staying on uh, the focus of clergy sexual misconduct, um, there's this 
the sense of arrival that often people feel when it comes to something like this, like somehow because things like the Me Too movement shed so much light on the reality of sexual harassment and assault within organization that we've somehow gotten past it. Um, so help us understand what tends to be the prevailing forms of these misdeeds and givings within an organization. They take a number of forms. Um, one one that is that that I've heard on multiple occasions has to do with just inappropriate comments. For some reason, when a woman stands in front of a congregation, uh, that seems to invite people to comment on her appearance, uh, her clothing, perhaps even to say things about uh, not just well, you look nice today, but that go beyond that in, in inappropriateness. Um, but not only just inappropriate comments, uh, unfortunately also inappropriate touching, uh, that perhaps those boundaries don't feel as existent with a woman clergy member. And so uh, the ways in which women get get hugged and touched, especially while, while these comments are being said, um, seems to be something that that happens unfortunately far too often um, combine that with when the women bring these comments forward a lot of times they get met with oh well that's just that's just in your head or that's just so and so and that's the way they show that that they like you um, but we have to set boundaries on that um, if a woman feels unsafe or uncomfortable in any way then that is a form of, of sexual harassment and misconduct if those comments are, are coming to her in that way. And so if, if we wanna be churches that are valuing the gifts of, of all people and, and women in particular, then we have to find ways to uh, address these things so that women do have the opportunity to share their gifts without that, that fear without the, the shame that goes along with it, of, of maybe it's all my fault and I'm doing something wrong. Uh, and so it's so important that we're, we're educating our congregations on, on what that looks like and appropriate boundaries. What are some of the, the common bullheaded ways that organizations mishandle these situations and culture? Covering it up or saying that really didn't happen or saying it was all your fault. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I was also part of institutions and would hear institutional stories of what that looks like, um, and congregations and the stories that I've heard from other women. And too, too often, uh, the first question is to the woman, to the survivor, what did you do? Um, and what ways did you encourage this? And figuring out how do we how do we shift that question uh, to a statement which says, "I hear you, I affirm that that was inappropriate," and that's the end of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, how how do we address this? Um, I think that's the that's the most common thing that I have heard is a a blaming of of the the survivor. When I open up the Bible, um, I'm reminded of this this living word that gives me life. It, it reshapes my way of thinking and living. It, it challenges me in new ways to love my neighbor. At the same time, I open this thing up and I recognize that there are some really unhealthy characters and circumstances in it. Um, for starters, David's sexual assault on Bathsheba. In the latter years, David's inability to act when his own daughter is raped by a half-brother. Um, and uh, we probably shouldn't even get started on Lot and his daughters and that, that whole situation. Um, do you think that the theology of the church, um, garnered from many of the patriarchal views of the Bible, has, has somehow enabled this kind of culture within the church? I think that the patriarchy that has existed in the church for thousands of years cannot be undone overnight and has effects far beyond what we see just on the surface. 
Um, and so, you know, when you look at those stories, how many times have we heard uh, Bathsheba blamed um, for David's misconduct with her? Um, how many times have we have we looked at the passages and you know, for for example, there's a, a passage in in Luke seven about a, a woman, which the title in my Bible says the sinful woman. Okay, um, and it says she was a woman who had sin, who lived in the city, and immediately people have assumed, even though it doesn't say it, that she was a prostitute, just because she was a woman who had sin. For some reason, women and sin and sexuality all get tied together. And that's something that really needs to be addressed and undone. Um, Peter's called a sinful man. He says, I'm a man of sin just two chapters earlier. And we don't assume that his sin is sexual or that he was somehow a prostitute. So I, I think that not only patriarchy, but all of the ways in which power and entitlement have become enmeshed in what it means to be church have created opportunities for people to be marginalized and for some people to be treated as if they are worth less than others. And I think the church has a long way to go in order to move away from that culture of we have the power, we are entitled to certain kind of things but instead to look at the ways in which the Bible uh, in the Old Testament, it, even amidst these stories of patriarchy and abuse, we always see God pushing to the margins. Uh, we, we see God asking, how, how are you treating the poor? Um, uh, in the story of, of Amos, Amos's prophecy, you know, as the, they're in a time of great renewal and, you know, Israel's having great success. God saying, you're, you're crushing the heads of the poor. Um, I think that we, we need to find ways to see how God's story is always pushing out to the margins so that we can deconstruct the power that we assume as the church, which finds its way into feeding us it, 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 these, these lies that some people have more value than others. Because when we can do that, maybe we could start to get to the root of the problem that creates these opportunities where abuse happens and there's no reper repercussions, um, where prejudice happens and no one says anything else, where we perpetuate systems uh, of oppression without coming to terms with the true consequences of those oppression on the lives of people who are created in the image of God. Hmm. Theologically, how do we do spiritual formation to shift this, this almost spiritually justified views of gender, gender roles, sexuality, harassment, and abuse? How do we do spiritual formation to maybe start changing that? Is that the... Yeah, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I wanted to, what I really wanted to ask was, you know, people who tend to claim that they have a, quote, biblical worldview, um, mm. you know, recognize their biblical worldview includes almost an endorsement or justification of these things. So how do, how do local church ministers do spiritual formation, helping people uh, deconstruct oftentimes these, these persuasions they have that maybe they don't recognize. Yeah. I, I think that we can, we definitely can begin to think about how we read the Bible. Um, when we say things like biblical worldview, if we have a biblical worldview of, of marriage, then there's a whole lot of polygamy in the Bible. Um, and we have, we have laws about, uh, men having to get married, a woman having to marry her rapist. Um, biblical marriage has many different perspectives. And I think when we can begin to see that the Bible as a collection of stories of the ways in which the people are God, of God are trying to put human words around something that's infinite and recognizing that 
we wind up getting a lot of different perspectives on that. We, we might find that there are a lot of different biblical worldviews. Um, and so maybe we, we need to sort through, through some of that. We can look at, at the commandment of Jesus who says, you know, when, when asked, what's the greatest commandment? Uh, well, well, that's to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How, how does love inform the ways that we think about the different biblical perspectives on what it means to be a man, a woman, a, a person in a position of power, a person who is marginalized? Um, I think that that commandment of love can go a long way. And in terms of thinking about how, how do we how do we decenter ourselves? Um, I think that our what we read, we we would go we would do a lot by trying to read the perspectives of people who are different from us. Um, if we read uh, theologians. Uh, theologians of color, if we read the way women are reading the Bible. Um, and, and honestly, I think, you know, as a part of that reading, I feel like there's so much power in contemplative prayer um, when when combined with really intentional ways of trying to to think about how we view the Bible and, and what we read and what we look at that, what, what we're looking at. Um, because contemplative prayer in itself is a way of taking our, our focus off of, off of what we can know and moving it on to who we know. Um, and when we do that, I think we, we wind up moving out of some of these polarities uh, where it has to be this way or this way and that's the end of it. But when we acknowledge here I am in my, my finite self, trying to connect to an infinite God. Something about that draws us into a story which, which doesn't just have a, a yes and a no, but is bigger than we can really understand. What do you think as we look at the, the church, church culture when it comes to, again, as we focus on... Uh, gender, gender role, sexuality, you know, harassment, patriarchy, these kinds of things. And I know that's a, a lot of deep individual topics into themselves. What do you think are the biggest challenges moving forward and continuing to change this culture? I think one of the biggest challenges is that a lot of us feel like, and I think you said it earlier, we feel like we kind of got this figured out. Um, especially with, with women in ministry, something that we see often is, uh, folks who say, oh, yeah, well, we've we've been ordaining women for, you know, 30 years. We've had women deacons. We've had associate pastors. We don't need to worry about this anymore. We're, we're, we've moved on. But when you're talking about thousands of years, it's not something that you can move on, you know, overnight or even in those 30 or, or 40 years. We, we really have to keep doing that work. Um, uh, an analogy that that I, I've used recently is. You know, imagine that you have this rope and over the course of a couple thousand years, you say, OK, every Sunday we're going to put a knot in the rope because ropes need knots. And so for a couple thousand years, we're putting knots in the rope, knots in the rope, knots in the rope. But then all of a sudden we say, you know, maybe ropes don't need knots. So we won't put any more knots in the rope. But when you look down at the rope, it has numerous knots still in it. So you can't just decide we don't want it to have a rope or we, we don't want it to have knots. You have to actually get in there with your hands and start undoing it. Um, and that's the work where we're swinging the pendulum and we're trying to say, how do we not only create equal spaces where we have men's and women's voices, but how do we elevate women's voices to try and undo some of that unconscious bias that we have against them? to undo what's been created within women for, for us to think that we're inferior, to constantly ask, you know, is it me? Or, you know, did I do something wrong here? Which sometimes we have for sure. Um, but it's going to take a, a lot of work to undo that. And so I, I honestly think that's one of the biggest obstacles that we face is a sense that, that we've already got this figured out. 
rather than real realizing we have to pay attention to this um in addition to so many other things that i know that that you know becomes this this long list of what we're having to to do but but it's worth it you know um if if we want to be a reflection of the beloved community then isn't it worth it to do the work to make sure that the the voices and gifts of every person are fully valued among us i think it is and i think that the the church will be more successful in its mission whenever we're able to do that for those that are uh, watching we want to remind you that um, you can share um, some of your questions down below we'll get to here momentarily um We'll get to the pandemic's effects on the work of BWIM in just a moment, but give us some insight into some of the other challenges you see BWIM facing in the coming years. Um, I think that uh, as an organization, um, we, we've actually got a great future. Um, I think as we as we look ahead, uh, and I, I'll go ahead and, and bring the pandemic into it, of. The church is undergoing, you know, kind of this moment of transition. Um, some folks have, you know, seen it as a, a negative moment for the church, where you know everything is changing. And absolutely, we've been we've been through some trauma. I think as as the church uh, in the past year, and I think there's going to be effects of that in the way we have to re envision what ministry looks like. We're going to have to re envision our, our our personnel patterns and budgeting. I think something that we've learned in the past year as the church is, um, you know, that resistance to change that that most that most churches are categorized as having, you know, oh, the church, they're never going to change. There was this. Well, we've learned that we can change. You know, we were put in a situation as a church and said, you, you've got to change if you're going to continue to figure out what it looks like to be church. And the church did that. And so uh, in thinking about women in ministry moving forward, how can we see that as an opportunity to say, hey, church, you know how to change. Uh, this is an opportunity to adapt, to creatively re-envision who you are and how you're going to accomplish God's work in the world. Um, and so maybe this, this moment of, of crisis for the church can also be visioned as a moment of opportunity when we have demonstrated we know that we have what it takes to be able to adapt. So why not go ahead and, and truly ask those hard questions of who do we want to be as, as a body of believers? Um, so I'm, I'm very hopeful about the future, uh, not only of our, of our organization, uh, but how we can be involved in helping churches to uh, imagine what that looks like in the days ahead. Well, the COVID-19 pandemic, I mean, it's rocked the world. There's there's not a single person that hasn't been affected by this year-long obstacle course of, of sickness, enclosures, death, financial strain, yeah. and, and so many unnamed things. I mean, I can think of a person or two that hasn't been affected uh, by it, but... Um, the church is not exempt from this. And, um, you know, as, as you were stating earlier, you know, for many churches, the, the pandemic has amplified or accelerated its need to adapt in an ever-changing world. For many churches, it, they might have experienced an unhealthy aging, um, mm. you know, that's, that's leading to a lot of difficult conversations in whatever next looks like. Um, you and I were exchanging some some messages recently as we were talking about you know what next looks like for the church and one of the things that you raised was that studies have found um, that women uh, lead better in times of crisis. So I wonder if you would take us a little deeper there into um, kind of this this study into crisis and and why women women are the best when it comes to leading in crisis. Yeah, and and I, I think I'll also go back to say I don't want to minimize the the trauma and grief of the past year um, by, by trying to move that toward an opportunity for change. Um, I think it will take a, a lot of people a long time to, to recover from the losses that have been experienced in the last year, church included. Um, and and when, we, when we look at the effect of, of the pandemic 
on women and people of color. More jobs have been lost by women and people of color than men. Um, a, a recent study by the, the Kaiser Family Foundation shows that women have significantly higher levels of stress during the pandemic than men have. Um, and some of that has to do with family responsibilities, caregiving, um, balancing work life in the home, all, all of those different factors. And so the pandemic has been hard on women. Um, and, I, and I think that there is definitely cause to, to say, we wanna make sure that we don't regress as women in ministry among Baptist life during this moment when, when women are affected, just like, just like the, the, the rest of the world um, and maybe even a little bit more so. Um, but, but there have also been studies that show women have higher levels of leadership effectiveness during times of crisis than men. Um, the, it, from the Harvard Business, Harvard Business Review published this article and they have a, a 360 leadership analysis that they perform. Um, and before the pandemic, women already scored just a little bit higher than men uh, in leadership effectiveness. But then during the pandemic, that that difference widened. Um, and that the reason that they say is because the way that women tend to engage in leadership, and, and I say this by also acknowledging that there are stereotypes among things. And so not all women lead the same way and there are certainly differences, but women tend to lead out of engagement. Um, and that means that they are uh, more in tune to inspiring and communicating, being in tune to the fears of the people that they are working with. Uh, they relate in a more personal way. And during crisis, that has proven to have even higher effectiveness in leadership. And so when we're thinking about the, the, the crisis of the church and what is that going to look like moving forward, I think the church would do well to to tap into the resource of women in leading during this crisis and in, in providing that uh, that fresh vision of innovation and creativity through this lens of how we engage with one another. Um, in crisis, you know, we have the, these studies. We also have uh, studies about women in society, which say that, you know, in businesses through, throughout the, the business sector, businesses that have women in leadership roles tend to make more money. Um, countries which empower women to be business owners and to be educated have a higher GDP. Um, and so success happens when women are involved in leadership. And as a church, certainly we're going to measure success differently um, in, in how we are we're reflecting who God has called us to be. But I have no reason to think that that wouldn't translate into congregations as well as women are, are leading in crisis and, and bringing the church into these, these thriving kinds of, of relationships. So when crisis happens, people either tend to um, entrench themselves or turn mm -hmm. inward and work out of a scarcity, or um, they look at the possibilities of navigating uh, what's around them out of a sense of abundance and congregations, you know, aren't any different from that. You know, so a lot of our congregations are going to be working, unfortunately, out of a mindset of a scarcity coming out of this pandemic. Um, you know, our smaller congregations uh, with fewer resources um, maybe aren't going to be willing in what they would view, not my words, but what they might view as taking a chance, you know. And um, I know we've discussed this before that one of the great potentials and the shifts that come out of this is the loss of a lot of associate pastor roles or um, full-time staff member roles within churches. And so a lot of opportunities are, you know, might be dissolving. So how do we, how do we not work out of a scarcity, but as, as congregational leaders, as organizational leaders, as denominational leaders, how do we begin to, um, to mentor and to fan the flame of, of a mentality of abundance for our congregations um, so that this is an opportunity to flourish and to thrive and maybe not an opportunity to, to cave in on itself. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest things that we hear from search committees who um, think they're going to be open to women and wind up not hiring women is, well, she just didn't have enough experience. Um, 
And how do women get experience if they can't get hired without experience? And now we have this potential where there's going to be maybe less leadership roles to go around. And women are already at a disadvantage when it comes to the, the hiring process. Um, and so I, I, I think that the, the key to changing the narrative from one of scarcity into abundance is we have to become proactive right now and the way we're, we're training our congregations to, to value the gifts of, of women within the church. If a congregation right now is, is content to say, um, you know, we've made it this far with only men in our leadership, we will make it the rest of the way. Um, then it's never going to be something that comes out of. But if, if we can start now, um, before we see the full effects of, of some of those difficulties in the church, uh, of trying to say, Let, let's do a deep dive into our congregation and see where are the spaces that we're not benefiting from women's gifts and leadership. Um, how, how on Sunday mornings are we explicitly or implicitly communicating to women that they are valued, affirmed as a part of this congregation? Because I think if we can create environments in which the whole congregation knows the importance of valuing the voices of women as well as men, then when it comes time for those, those leadership decisions and transitions, we won't have the same kinds of questions and comments being, being raised if it's an inherent part of our congregational culture rather than something that we just talk about when we're in leadership transition. Um, we, we need to be affirming the value of, of women and girls in every space within our congregation if we're going to be able to, to act out of that abundance instead of scarcity. So I don't want to minimize congregational size, but certainly for many people, there is a, a first call type of church. And a lot of people that ends up being their calling for their entire vocational career to serve what might be a, a small a congregational model. So I, when I say that, I don't, I'm not minimizing a church by size, by their capacity, but certainly for a lot of young ministers who are stepping into their first call into smaller congregations, um, there's a lot of learning and growing that happens in that space. And also at the same time, um, as many of us have been the beneficiaries of those that have led before us, um, you want to be a part of helping lead and pave the way into helping that congregation think critically and think differently about things, which might include um, the work of supporting women in ministry, uh, the work of justice, the work of equality. So what does that look like for somebody who's serving maybe a smaller congregation? Um, this is a question that we have from from one of our audience members. Um, and, and that's actually a, a great segue that I can do a little commercial for the fact that February is our BWIM Month of Preaching Initiative where we're encouraging congregations to have a woman preach during the month of February. It's something we've done for the past 14 years. Um, but I think for ministers who are in smaller congregations and trying to have uh, those conversations, um, this could be an opportunity to introduce uh, a woman's voice to the congregation as almost a first step uh, to say, look, it, it's, the, the, you know, fire didn't come down from heaven when a woman stood in the pulpit and proclaimed the word of God, right? Um, but instead we learned something and we grew together in, in that opportunity. Um, and so I, I think that, that that really is one way. Maybe it's, maybe it's other steps that are uh, in a different space. Uh, I, I heard a great story of a woman who said, you know, she had gone to this church forever and wanted to make a difference in the way that people saw women. And so for, for a couple of years, she asked, could I just hand out the bulletins? Because only men handed out the bulletins. Um, and as she asked, finally, at some point, they said, okay, you can hand out the bulletins. So maybe that was the first step. And the next step is, what, what if woman, women, you know, pass the offering plates? Or, or what if women were, were serving communion? Um, what if women were, were, leading the, the finance committee. Uh, maybe there are a lot of ways, not only from 
the top down and seeing women in the pulpit, but also from the bottom up to say, women are a part of each of these spaces um, and can have a valued role in that. Well, we need to, to pause to tell you about our last and final uh, annual sponsor, last but not least. Um, this podcast is presented by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be compassionate, more faithful, and more just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and interim ministers, the center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center, and you can trust them as a partner in ministry. Uh, we also want to let you know uh, that you can join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcaster listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. For just a few dollars a month, you can receive some perks like name recognition on the podcast, books from the podcast, joining me for an interview with an upcoming guest, or hanging out with next summer's podcast guest at General Assembly. Join the existing podcast listener support community. We see you Cincinnati, Ohio, Raleigh, North Carolina. Milton, Florida, Munich, Germany, and Cape Town, South Africa. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we're grateful that you're here to be part of the conversation. So visit cbf.net backslash podcast support. Um, as we wrap up our time, Meredith, I wonder if you might uh, send us a word on how people can best find out more about BWIM, um, the great work that you're doing, uh, and the great work that's being done across our fellowship and beyond. Well, we would love to connect with uh, everyone within Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and Baptist Life as lar at large. Uh, our website is bwim.info. Uh, we have great resources there. We have places where you can sign up for our newsletter, uh, where we send out information about new programs and initiatives that we are providing to women and to congregations. Um, we also have uh, all the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can follow us at Baptist Women. Uh, one of the greatest things we love to do is to share the in celebration of women in new leadership roles, uh, being ordained. Uh, we love to share the stories of women in ministry. Uh, we think it's so important that we're able to share in those successes together. And we find that those stories uh, are a way of helping our community to say, look, it's, it's happening every day. This is not a unicorn, uh, but there are women who are serving in wonderful ways and doing the work of God. Uh, and so we want to share that with you as well. So we hope you'll follow us there too. Well, I want to extend a word of thanks to those that have been watching and adding your questions to the conversation. Uh, more importantly, Meredith, we want to thank you for your extraordinary leadership um, in a very uncertain future. Thank you for your willingness to lead the way. Oh, I appreciate that very much. All right. That's it. That's our conversation. Uh, if you want to make sure you subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast, and more. Don't forget to like and share this episode of your favorite social media platform. And be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their pages. Again, that's Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAfee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more.